With the 25th pick in the NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select. You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast. I'm Fran Duffy, and I'm really excited for today's show because we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of player evaluation with a guy that I just have so much respect for and has been uh, a scout in the league for multiple NFL teams. He's now the head of scouting development for the Scouting Academy. He's been on the show before. That's Dan Hatman, again, a former NFL scout. We're going to go through his entire evaluation process, and I promise a lot of unique anecdotes, a lot of things that Dan does that no one else in this business on the media side really, really does, and uh, I've taken so much from him in terms of what I do from a personal level. I hope you guys do as well. Let's get into that discussion now here on Mr. Relevant. It's time for Mr. Relevant. Well, as we talked about earlier in the show, I am really psyched to have Dan Hatman here uh, from the Scouting Academy to talk about the evaluation process. And I want to bring Dan in now. Dan, uh, welcome back to the Journey to the Draft podcast. And let's talk about the evaluation process. I really want to get a sense from you to start things off. What does an evaluation look like for you? How much film do you want to watch on a guy before you feel really good about it? How do you get started? What are the things, the boxes you want to check off as you're doing your evaluation on on a college player going to the NFL? So I have a little different take on it than than most. I think it's partly because of the years now spent kind of looking at it outside of just a team structure and, and more of a broad scale there's a line from a, an article we actually have our students read day one, and it talks about studying how the plant grows before the flower blooms. And the idea behind that for me is I want to do homework on where they've been, how many coordinators they've had, how many position coaches they've had, maybe try to get an understanding of what was happening in their building, their team, their scheme. Uh, were they a high school starter? Did they come into college with immediate expectations? I want to try to understand this because when I sit down to do somewhere between three and seven to nine games, depending on the position, I want to understand that what I'm looking at in that film snapshot, really that senior year snapshot is just that it's one moment in time in this person's life. And I'd like to try to understand things prior to that so that I understand where I might need to add more film to it. So there are some players where you sit down and you watch three to five games and your your confidence interval, like you get done and you feel really, really good about this player has such a consistent level of performance regardless of competition, regardless of environment. Like they're just an easy eval. And they could be for good reasons, for mid-level reasons, for for high or for low-end reasons. Uh, but you, you're just confident. Like I see what I see and it's over and over and over again and there's very little variance in that. Then you have other players where you get done with the three games. You're like, I have no idea. You get done with five games. You're like, I have no idea. You're pushing towards <laughs> seven and nine, and you're still like, okay, I feel good about maybe half of their play, but there's still more questions than answers when I get done with it. And so I've actually built a section of my report writing um, where I just leave questions that I would bring to that player, that coaching staff, those set of teammates that that film cannot answer for me at this point. And for my one bit of advice for anybody out there wanting to do this work is recognize the limitations of the film. It is the starting point, right? It is, it's the core. We have to watch them play football because that's what they're projected to do. But at the same time in that, the film can't answer every question. So I'll just tell a story. It was two, maybe three seasons ago. We have a student approaches me and says, listen, I'm watching a corner at the FCS level. I've never seen this alignment before. Usually a corner at that level is aligned either right or left or field or boundary. And so you can get an indication of things from that. He goes, I, I'm not sure, but I'm confident that this player is being aligned on their sideline yep. every time. Sure. And I, I think the coaching staff is talking to this young man before snaps. And the question posed to me at that time was, is this player lacking intelligence? Are they not bright? And I said, I don't know. It's plausible, but from what you've given me so far, I just don't know. To me, that's a good question that you would need to bring. So I look up the staff. I ironically knew somebody on it. I call up the staff and I said, hey, and I paint the same picture for them. I'm watching your corner. I'm trying to figure out the alignment. Talk to me about what I'm seeing here because I haven't seen a team line a guy up on their own sideline before. And they said, no, no, you're seeing it right. You're seeing it right. I said, so, okay, then the natural question that comes from us is what's the kid lacking? Why do you have to talk to him? 
And they go, listen, we're FCS. We don't have helmet communication, right? So we can't call the plays into somebody. So we signal everything off the sideline. We'd actually lost a lot of staff members off our staff to other teams in our conference. And we had the feeling that our st- signals had been stolen and that other people knew what we were calling in. So, no, the guy on our sideline was our smartest DB. And he, wind talker styled, him and the other DBs had this whole thing figured out where we could get the call to him and he could get it around the horn and no one knew what it was besides that group of people. And so, no, that was our smartest DB. And it's just one of those anecdotes that, to me, reiterates over and over again, like there are things that we can be confident in when we're done with the film, but sometimes we just get done and have a good question and we got to use that as a stepping stone to the next part of the process. See, like that that stuff right there is phenomenal. And as soon as you said, I I've seen corners uh, and and safeties as well, where yeah, they're only lined up to the 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 team side of the field. You see, they switch by quarter, and I've wondered the same thing. So to get an answer uh, for that specific scenario, I, I find to be fascinating. Let me ask you this question: you, And you mentioned how many games you try and watch of a guy it might be three, five, seven, sometimes nine. When you're first starting that evaluation, how do you? What's your internal process for picking those games? Do you try and spread them out through the course of the season? Do you go best competition, best production? How do you go about picking which games to start your eval off with? I want to see their highs and their lows. I'm looking for that consistency of production. So I will go to um, the schedule and I'll look for best matchup. Like where do I think that on a player to player level? Uh, they're going to get superior competition. Now, if I'm looking at a player like a quarterback, I want the whole team defense and defensive coordinator at a high level as best I can. Um, So I'm going to look for high level of comp. I'm going to go to the stat sheet. I'm going to find their best and their worst game production-wise, just from the raw numbers standpoint. I want to take a look at those. I'd like to see one on the road, if not multiple. I'd like to see one at home, if you know, depending on how many looks, if not multiple. I want to go – I'll go as far as to look at weather. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see maybe a game in some inclement weather because clearly we're not going to play every game in a 72 degree indoor facility. So I want to see one with wind or sleet or freezing rain or whatever else. And just I'd like to see them in as many atmospheres as I can. Again, home, road, good comp, bad comp, good production, bad production. And then hopefully by the end of that, I've generated enough exposure that I'll have those good questions. Okay, well, in this setting, we have variants. We didn't get the same production. Why was that? That's something I need to dig in on or across all that home road competition, weather, whatever, everything is basically the same. They just play at the same level. They are what they are. Then I get done and I feel really confident that the film has given me what I need to know from a football perspective. See, and to me like that, that's always, it's, Everybody kind of changes things up in terms of how they like to do it, and that was one of the things I, I wanted to get from you. And obviously, uh, a very nuanced approach to it to be able to look at uh, you know the different weather uh, inclements and you know what just the different things that uh, can affect a guy's play. To me, uh, a very very interesting uh, way to kind of look at it. All right, let's take me through now the calendar year for you. Obviously, your role at the Scouting Academy, you're running the Scouting Academy. You have uh, three different uh, semesters, right? You have fall, sp- summer, and spring. Yeah, we actually just started our summer semester yesterday. Yep. So we'll be doing that uh, between now and September, I think, 2nd. Um, and we just got done with our spring semester on on May 5th. So we're, we're pretty much always running on that front. But for me and the, the football player eval side, uh, the summer is where I try to shift gears back to the NFL. Uh, I'm going to look, sit down. I'm going to look at rosters. I'm going to look at things that I'm interested in looking at in training camp. There's a, my pro scouting background came out, comes out in this time of year. So we were always looking for where does a team have a surplus or a deficit to a, a large degree from an outside perspective? Because again, if you're, if you look at a, a team and they typically only carry five receivers, but you've got seven guys on their roster that you think are worthy worthy players, chances are they're going to try to sneak one of the practice squad, but there's a surplus there. Maybe that's a, a mid-camp trade acquisition. You'll see those now. It used to be the 75. We don't have anymore. So now we're seeing a lot of player for players before game four, just a one-week you know, 10 day tryout basically. Uh, so I'll look at those kind of things and then vice versa. The team got a big deficit. I'm, I'm looking around the league trying to match up. Okay. Well maybe this team's got extra. Um, and that just for my own purposes, I'm not building a roster, but I'm, I'm fascinated by those mechanisms. And then I start looking at 
you know, the season and in each month of it. And I'm interested to see what matchups, you know, which pieces, who might be coming along, which team I think needs to have, you know, uh, a certain level of performance early on in order to be there late. Um, and that's, I'm studying NFL all through the fall as best I can, because, and again, I think it's my pro scouting background coming out at some point in the college to pro evaluation game, you're going to write a projection. You're going to explain from what you've learned about a player in their college setting. Here is what I anticipate their pro career might be like. So you're going to project them from a college role to an NFL role. And so I feel like if we don't have a firm understanding of what those NFL roles are, and they are constantly moving, uh, second-level defenders, linebackers, stand-up linebackers, nickel corners, drop-down safeties have changed in terms of skill sets and the way that they're attacked by offenses. Obviously, offensive skill players, we've seen some variance there. Uh, the archetype of quarterbacks, I don't think as existent league-wide or prevalent as it used to be. So all these little modifiers, it has to change the way we value players. So I want to look at the league from that perspective. Is there something that doesn't fit our, our preconceived archetype that's being effective? Why? And is that going to become a new trend? Can people get ahead of a curve on that one? So I'm looking all fall at those kind of mechanisms. So when I get to usually the senior bowls, my time where I flip the switch and I go to the college side, now I'm looking at those players and I'm trying to compare it directly to these roles and responsibilities that we've seen all fall proven to be effective and then which players match into that. So there was a time where, you know, when I was still scouting uh, for the Jets, we were looking for three, four defensive ends. Like that was a thing. There was a three, there was a body type and a skill set called a three, four defensive end. And I talk about this with a historic tone because it doesn't exist anymore. Yep. There, there isn't a role on a team for a 3-4 defensive end because even if you use that player in your base under package, uh, even if you try to get a little bit of two-gap out of them, we don't do it as much as we used to, and we're 60% plus nickel packages. So at some point, they're a one-gap penetrator. So if they're not that guy, they're a role player. That used to be a starter. That used yep. to be a starter to get drafted high. Now that player is outside of your top 30, and you like them, but – you can't use them a ton. And so that's a drastic change. We used to have fullbacks on pretty sure. much every team in the league. Now there's like eight to 12 teams that still carry one. So for them, they have that archetype for other teams. They don't, um, you know, big slot receivers is a new thing. That's really coming around again. This, this hybrid, um, hybrid safety that's detached over number two type player you know, used to be, well, they used to be called tweeners dan remember that term oh my goodness the tweener <laughs> now it's now it's the primary starter it's the yeah. focal point so anyway i'm a, i spend the fall looking at those things because i feel like if i get to the spring and i'm just comparing the college guys to what i think i used to know then my projections are going to be off my valuations are going to be off and that that bothers me well, and that goes to what you you like to harp on the evaluation versus the va- the valuation uh, of these players. And let me ask you this real quick because you and I have talked about this offline. And I think it's pertinent to this conversation. the The process and all thirty two teams operate differently, obviously, within their personnel departments. But you know what you'll see with a lot of teams is they'll cross train um, their pro scouts on the college side. They'll take their college guys and, and get them some pro scouting as well. Most college scouts, it seems, and, I, and you have a better pulse of this than I do, but you know, just anecdotally for me, it seems most college scouts will start on the pro side so that they have a, a more ingrained uh, you know, understanding of this is what it looks like to, to work in the NFL from a, you know, from a player standpoint. This is what works. Now go find these guys in college. And then from time and time again, typically in the summer uh, during training camp, you get kind of uh, an, an abridged re, uh, you know, reintroduction to the league in terms of what works. Is that what you kind of see uh, teams using from a, a league-wide perspective? Uh, yes, I would say generally speaking, because the, the first two years you're in an NFL building usually labeled as a scouting assistant, the primary duties are going to be on the pro side in a supporting role. From there, when you get promoted, you might end up staying in that pro scout track for a little while, and then others will go off in the college track, whether it be the college scouting coordinator or combine scout or what have you. Um, my fear is that some teams still keep those two departments siloed more than I would yep. recommend. Yep. Um, you know, the idea that we're going to take we, – we've extended the college scouting calendar to 12 months, right? So there used to be a time where after the draft, you know, those guys were basically off the clock. 
and they'd have some time to to recoup and and refresh and re-energize or what have you. And now they're immediately into the 2020 class and they're doing summer film work and so forth and so on. And they're prepping everything. And so there's no downtime on this anymore. And even when you bring these guys to camp, they're still nailing down their schedules. They're calling about restrictions. They're making hotel and flight reservations. I mean, yes, they're going to see your team in camp. And through the season, most scouts that I'm aware of are watching their team's game on Sunday or Monday or what have you, even if it's a taped version, but they're making sure they're staying up with their team so they can tell which of these college players is better than their team. Um, but I, I don't know if we do a good enough job of the pro side who's getting exposure. A pro department wants to look at all 32 teams each year and grade every player. So I feel like the, the smart teams are the ones that are saying, listen, let me take that information and distill it in a way that then we can present not just with verbal or written piece, but on video. Most of us are visual learners. Like I think a smart team would take the things that their pro department's learning about changes that might be upcoming changes that that team might consider for their structure in years to come and say, Hey, we're seeing some of these things moving in this direction. Here's film from the NFL side to support what we're talking about so that you can see these skill sets ahead of time uh, and potentially highlight or lift those players up earlier in the eval process uh, because the GMs and personnel directors only have so much time on their hands, right? So you know, the yep. scouts are out there that the old term is bird dogging, but obviously trying to elevate or point people to players. The earlier that you get a guy on the radar, the easier it is to get the full comprehensive eval done by everybody in a timely fashion rather than some condensed thing when a guy pops off at a pro day in March. Hard to have a comprehensive work done between then and the draft. So – I think a, a smart team would do a little bit better to take the the lessons that are being learned on the pro side and more than just kind of a anecdotal or, you know, cursory, okay, yeah, there's a little bit moving here. Help help everybody in their building know each and every year where's the league going, where are the trends. Um, and again, I know you're only picking players for your team, but at some point, the scout that's out on the road is doing two jobs. They're evaluating the player for their team and trying to help their team generate a value on them. But they're also have their ears open to what is the league saying about the player? Because that's how you manipulate the draft. Sure. Right. And so, you know, we're sitting here, I'm looking at the, the, the Eagle head on your shirt and I'm going, you know, jumped up ahead of Houston to grab a tackle. That's because word on the street is. And again, if you look at the roster, Houston probably needs a tackle. If they sit there and wait, chances are they don't have that player. You, know, you don't have Dillard on your roster. And so it doesn't necessarily change the evaluation of who Dillard is, but you might have to move things in order to, to get the players that you want available to you. And so, again, knowing what's trending in the league, if you still have first-round grades on a 3-4 defensive end, because that's when you came up and you were in the pro side 12 years ago, that was actually a role. That then you have to massage that out late in the process rather than, again, getting these guys educated throughout. So, again, I think both sides should be talking to each other constantly about what are we learning and what's uh, shifting and adjusting. Dan, what, what are your strengths as an evaluator? If you, if you were to self-scout yourself, we all have kind of strengths and weaknesses. What, what would you say your biggest strengths are? I grew up in the in the pit on the defensive side, um, you know, from that and through my coaching time, it was always defensive line. And so I'm very comfortable with the front seven. Uh, I actually coached specialists, kickers, punters, long snappers. I saw a void on my staff at UMass and thought there'd be a chance to differentiate myself. So I went and clinic with every special teams person I could on just specialists, not coverage stuff, because every every team has someone that's, an, you know, usually an expert in that. But very few places have an expert on actually kicking the ball even people that are special teams coordinators especially at the college level may not be experts on actually kicking or snapping the ball they expect those people to kind of learn those skills elsewhere or send them to camps and we'll send them a zoner he'll get them figured out but that was something that i wanted to do and, and get my hands on um so those are areas where i feel really good the areas where i have to spend more time because i don't have that same confidence intervals like the passing game so receivers dbs quarterbacks i will always be picking the brains of people that are dedicated to those spaces and have either spent their lives on it or advancing those spaces because um, that's an area where, again, I didn't grow up in that. So yeah. I, you know, I've been learning that throughout my career. I'll never stop learning that because um, – and I think, I think they're evolving the most. Sure. You know, it's a good point. Pass rush isn't evolving. We're just asking them to do it more. 
but the passing game and coverages are constantly evolving. That cat and mouse game is moving faster. So if you're not trying to keep pace, you're going to fall way off. And so that's the area I spend the most time trying to learn. Who would you say have been your biggest uh, influencers in terms of your evaluation process? You've been uh, with a number of teams. You've worked with uh, some really, really bright individuals uh, all across the NFL. Who would you say uh, throughout your, your career has been the, the biggest influences on the way that you look at college talent? You know, the one of the biggest influences for me in terms of changing the process was Lewis Riddick. Um, just he outlined his career arc and his path and really forced me to kind of come to grips with the fact that something that should be obvious to everybody, but I don't think it is. We, we end up turning these players into commodities into, um, their commodities wrong term, but we end up like dehumanizing them, right? They just become these, these things that are playing this game as opposed to recognizing they're a human being. And so there are things that are going on in their lives that could impact that. Again, all that research, how is the plant growing before the flower blooms kind of methodology right. comes out of that thought process of if I go out and I watch one game, it's a snapshot in time. And I don't know what that person's week was before that. I don't know what that person's month was before that or year was before that. So the more I can do my diligence on that side, the better off I'll be. Um, you know, guys like uh, Brendan Prophet and Scott Cohen with the Jets were phenomenal in terms of uh, roster construction and advanced scouting and um, and helping me on that side. A lot of my football background actually comes from a staff we had at the University of Massachusetts. Keith Dzinski, Brian Butterworth, Damian Mincy on the defensive side, Brian Christ, um, the passing game side on the offensive, uh, Brian Picucci, who's now with the Lions on offensive line. So these guys – Took a kid in. I had already been with the Giants, but I can tell you I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, and really coached me up on the X's and the O's, the football side, and, and, and sent me back out into the football world uh, a hell of a lot stronger. And so I appreciate them for that. So you've already touched on a lot of the things that you do that honestly I don't think many of us do in, in the media. But based off those things that you have learned from others, what are some of the things that you know that you do that are different that set your process apart from other people's? You know, to me, it's about those questions and this recognition of a stopping point in my evaluation where I might feel good about certain things, but I can't be done yet because there's more that I need to go investigate. Um, It's almost a journalistic approach or a a private investigator approach of like, I would like to find multiple sources to confirm my hypothesis. You know, I think it's because of X. Let me go test that. Let me go see if that bears out and if other people will repeat that back to me without me giving it to them. And so then it becomes about framing the question. Like, don't tell them the answer. Don't give them your hypothesis. Present the situation. See what they deliver to you. You know, and it's things like that that get to be hard in this because you can create situations where you just get a lot of confirmation bias. If I have a hypothesis and I go to the guy's college coach who has an incentive to get that player drafted high, every college coach you'll ever meet, if you grab their resume, will have a section for all the players they've ever coached or recruited yeah. that got drafted. Sure. So every college coach has an incentive for getting his player drafted as high as humanly possible. So if I go to that college coach with a genuine question, on something that presented variance in the film evaluation. And I asked them with the hypothesis in there, Hey, is it because of X, Y, and Z? Chances are they'll tell me yes. And then just to confirm my thing, cause they don't have to give me any new information. They just tell me what I think I already know. And we all go on. And, um, so one of the things that I've been trying to learn and, and from people like Brian Decker, who's now with, uh, the Indianapolis Colts, um, and their player development side, but also on this this mental cognitive personality aptitude and studying piece. Scott Goldman, who's a consultant with the the Dolphins and the Lions and runs a group called Athletic Intelligence Measures. I try to pick these guys' brains as much as possible on how can we elicit this in a more objective way? How can we re- what I call reduce the opportunity for human error? That becomes a big piece to me. Um, because a lot of times we end up putting a a stumbling block in front of ourselves, tripping over it, and then looking back and wondering what happened when it's just an opportunity for human error that we created and didn't remove from the process. One of the things that I love kind of just getting a sense of, you know, in talking with people all just around the industry is, you know, look, the the NFL draft has become such a big part of, of the NFL calendar over the last, you know, decade, two decades. 
and we obviously spend a lot of time talking about it. What's one part of it that you feel personally, maybe we in the media just, we spend a little bit too much time on it. There's a little bit too much focus on this singular part of the process. Um, I mean, I know that because we've televised events like the combine, that there is some frustration with that. But at the same time, like, Everyone understands the strengths. Even the media that are presenting the combine discusses the strengths and the weaknesses behind the event. Um, so you go there to try to learn things, to try to fill in gaps in your eval, to try to learn the medical, what have you, do the interviews. Um, but that's just because it's it's fun to see these premier athletes doing very athletic things. I mean, it's I like watch the Olympics. We, you know, those things are just entertaining. Um, I think what ends up being a pain is that last month. When the teams go dark, they're finishing their 30 visits, they're they're doing their security checks on players, they're having their final set of draft meetings, they're trying to get their information locked and loaded. At the same time, they are pressing on who has sources, who's leaking information, they're running counter intel things to try to manipulate um, information flow because at the end of the day, it's about winning on that draft night. So that first round pick, for example, if you have a set of three players that you figured out that should be available close to where you're at, how can I increase the chance of those three guys being available to me? Well, telling everybody who those three players are does not do that. So this idea that we've we've uncovered and unearthed this information is always kind of baffling to me because either that individual with that team, whether it's a GM and down to the scout, if someone's leaking their actual target, that's a very dumb person. And they, they really shouldn't be allowed to do this job anymore because they didn't help their team succeed. Um, so most of the stuff that comes out that last month is really frustrating because – and it's for everybody. Everybody's just trying to get to this event that's pre-scheduled. You probably could get it done a month earlier, but that last bit of time can be paralysis by analysis. But at the same time, there are certain players that when you talk about that confidence interval is not high, it's a personal thing or a medical thing or a character thing, or they were a late riser. Again, we found some small school guy at a pro day and we're trying to rush to get this done. Sometimes those last few hours can be important to trying to get all that information together because one of the most difficult things to do is when – I'm on the outside, right? So if I sit down and I determine that I like or dislike a player, it's one person's opinion and I can ride with that. A team doesn't have that. For a player that's going to be drafted on Thursday night of the draft, you most likely have between nine or 12 evaluations in on that player. You have copious information. You have dozens of sources on that. It's an aggregation or an, an integration problem. How do you take all of this information and turn it into one final grade on what you think this player can be for you. And sometimes it's about tuning out certain voices, sometimes about elevating certain voices sometimes. And so we hear these things and people get frustrated, you know, particularly people in the the scouting profession get frustrated with like, I don't know if I have a voice on draft night. And I go, I get that. But at the same time, if I had to make a decision, I got 12 people yelling at me. It turns into like one of those game shows, you know, the price is right. And there's everybody shouting out what price they think they should go with. You know, and eventually the person just you can watch them just kind of block it all out. And they're like, forget it. I'm going with this. Like, I feel like that's what a GM is on draft night. Like they've got all these voices screaming at him about what they think this GM should do. And then they finally got to just block all that out and be like, OK, from what I've gained from every one of you, I think the answer is this. And they just got to roll with it. But that last month's really frustrating, I think, for literally everybody involved. That's interesting. I've never, I've never heard it, but you're exactly right on all of it. I've never heard it uh, illustrated that way before. My last question before I let you go. Um, I've said numerous times that uh, for people that want to get into the business, and even if you don't want to get into uh, you know, scouting or anything, you just want to be a better or smarter fan, the Scouting Academy is the way to go. But um, I want you to talk about the scouting, scouting Academy, what you guys offer, what you know, the results have been over the course of the last few years, and then also just any other general advice uh, that you would have for our listeners out there that you know want to just get better at the player evaluation process my general i'll start with the general advice because i think this applies hopefully to everybody listening because if you're, if you're taking the time to listen to this then you care about this sport and this process um p- uh, professional development in the evaluation community is one of the weakest parts of it Right. If I look, if you look at all the other industries, everybody that works in all these other places, there are conferences you can go to and classes you can take. My, you know, my accountant has to do 40 hours of continuing ed every year to keep a CPA license. That doesn't happen in this space. Too many times we act like hamsters on a wheel 
where we're just running. The calendar never stops. It's 12 months. There's always another player. There's always more film. And so we just keep running and running and running. At some point, you got to take a break and you got to step out of what you've been doing and either get an outsider to assess that and provide feedback or go seek out. You just got to gotta find someone that's a different voice, ideally someone that you can respect as being potentially smarter in an area than you are and saying, let me sit down and show you this thing that I've been doing and give me feedback on it and let's go from there. And and, and really that's what the academy has turned into. Uh, it started as an apprenticeship plan I actually pitched while I was in Philly. Because there was a chicken and egg problem, right? So teams wanted to hire people that knew what to do, but you couldn't learn what to do unless you work for a team. To me, that's a chicken and egg problem. Sure. So the idea is simply step in the middle, take people that have spent their lives working in football, coaches, GMs, execs, what have you, and take an audience of people that are interested in the field. That's it. If you're interested in the field, we want to work with you and help you determine two things. One, do you like this profession? Until you start working it, there's really no way to understand if you like it. Like sitting around and watching your favorite team on Sunday is not the same thing. Turning on the top 10 players that a draft analyst told you your team might take and watching their YouTube is not the same thing. Like it's fun to watch Aaron Donald. Most of the times in scouting, you're not watching guys that look like Aaron Donald. (laughs) So you got to figure out, do I like this work? That's step one. Step two, are you good at this work? Are you good at it now? Can you be good at it in the future and have someone, again, walk you through where you're at, where you can go and what things you need to add to your tool belt to get there? And so that's what we do. Our sessions are designed to help you determine, do you like this and are you good at this now or in the future? If those two boxes get checked, then we want to go to bat for you. We actually want to create a merit-based pipeline for people to work towards employment. So you talked about the different avenues. We've had 29 alumni go on to NFL opportunities. We just had our 15th um, alumni go from scouting assistant to full-time scout. So of the 18 individuals that we've had that have earned a scouting assistant position for a full year with the team, 83% have been promoted to full-time. That's awesome. Um, We have a number of people in the Canadian leagues. We had a couple people in the Alliance when it was still there that are now moving to the XFL. Uh, We have over 90 in college football with 59 in Division I. So the fingerprints are are huge there. We have people, we have beat writers for teams. We have analysts at Pro Football Focus. We have analysts at Sports Info Solutions. We have people at Next Gen Stats, people that are writing for SB Nation or any of these other sites. Like, if you want to learn about this, we're here for you. Uh, We started with the idea of people wanting to get in the NFL, but we've really fallen for the idea. This is an evaluation community. It's really not that big, all things considered. And if you want to be a part of it in some way, we want to be there for you. Well, Dan, I've said numerous times, and it's just an outstanding resource. And if, if any of you guys out there have the ability to enroll for a semester uh, with the Scouting Academy, I, I promise that if you're all in, um, you will not be disappointed. And Dan, really appreciate the time here uh, once again on the Journey to the Draft podcast. Hope to talk to you again very soon. Thanks for having me. Once again, just outstanding stuff there from Dan Hatman from the Scouting Academy. And while we're talking about academies, why don't we talk about the Eagles Football Academy? And really, to me, you know, you look at the Eagles Football Academy, offers hands-on coaching and instruction for football players from, from ages 7 to 16. So if you've got a young football fan in your life that you know, wants to learn more about the game or just wants to get out in the summer, Go out. These are clinics that are held here at the Novacare Complex, non-contact drills led by top high school coaches, college coaches in the area, as well as appearances by you know Eagles players. Swoop will be there. The cheerleaders will be there. Summer clinics are filling fast, so uh, get to PhiladelphiaEagles.com slash Eagles Academy to sign your son or daughter up today. I promise these, these clinics are a lot of fun, and they're multiple days throughout the course of the summer. So just go onto that website, check it out, and enroll. Just a really, really fun exercise uh, for for your young Eagles fan in your life. All right, uh, next segment on the show, we're going to talk with Ben Fennell. Last week, we talked about all the teams in the NFC and AFC East. Well, this week, we're going to go to the South. We're going to talk about the four teams in the NFC South, the four teams in the AFC South. How did they look to build their rosters and improve their teams in the NFL draft? Ben and I take a quick look at those eight squads. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, back again here to break down the AFC and NFC South 
draft selections from this past year. Ben Fennel, who you can follow on Twitter at Ben Fennel underscore NFL. Ben, uh, welcome back. We're going to uh, dive into the Tampa Bay Bucks first. Uh, any initial parting shots to, to talk about here with Tampa to start things off? No, I just think uh, we know when you bring in a new defensive coordinator, they want to get their players and their scheme fits in. Todd Bowles is down there. Their first five picks, they go defense, 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 defense. So tells you kind of the makeover that they're looking to do on that side of the ball. Can I say that I'm like a, a Devin White to Tampa hipster? Like I was calling that one before <laughs> it was cool, like without question. Because to me, like that's like a that's a connect the dots pick, right? Todd Bowles went to LSU and got his culture changer a few years ago and Jamal Adams when he was the head coach of the Jets. Jason Light is not a guy that's not afraid. You know, he's not afraid to say, oh, I'm going to take a linebacker in the top five. Like, forget like positional value and anything like that. Like, I'm okay there. You lose Quan Alexander in free agency. Big need. New scheme change, so you want to get a guy in to be your guy. Like to me, there was too much there to say. Like, Quan oh, yeah, also a former LSU more linebacker. former LSU yeah, guy. Yeah. Like, there were so many d- dots to connect there, um, and they had talked about wanting to get guys that were leaders. And he's known as you know probably the biggest alpha dog in this class, uh, Devin White. So made a lot of sense. Yeah, no question. I think it's just a great fit. That linebacker is such a nucleus position. It's going to affect your front, affect the you know the safeties behind you. He's a playmaker. And he's a little bit reckless, a bit out of control. But I'd rather those players and dial them back than someone who's a little bit timid and I need to crank it up a little bit. Yeah. So this guy makes plays. Is he a little bit out of control at times? Absolutely. But once he gets there, he he gets there with some intensity, some violence, and he looks to make an impact. And that's what all defenses in the NFL are looking for. We want impact players that are playmakers. So I know you've got uh, death charts up. I want to ask you about their secondary. Um, because to me, this is very interesting. Look at what they did on day two. Uh, they take Sean Bunting out of Central Michigan, Jamel Dean from Auburn, Mike Edwards from Kentucky. Last year, they took two corners uh, on day two. They had Carlton Davis and MJ Stewart. They took Vernon Hargreaves a couple years ago in the first round. So a lot of bodies there, guys that can play corner, whether it's inside, outside. It kind of speaks to what we talked about last week with James Betcher. You know, he learned under Todd Bowles. They want to play a lot of sub package. What do we know about Todd Bowles? Ton of dime, ton of nickel. You know, they want to get a lot of DBs on the field. So, in one sense, that makes sense. But also, it kind of speaks to some of the other guys they already have there on the roster as well. Yeah, when I look at the depth chart there, to be perfectly honest with you, I have no idea where these players are playing inside, Man, outside. Fascinating. You know, no question. So, right now, they have a hopper of a lot of interesting players that they can move around, but. Until we get into camp and start seeing that pecking order on who they feel comfortable with where and who's a true slot or who maybe you know can kick outside and inside or who's just a depth piece and dime package. They've obviously dedicated resources to these players. A lot of first-round picks going and getting a Sean Bunting player in the second round is a commitment to Sean Bunting. Yep. He's not just a, a role player that's you know behind the scenes. He's someone that's going to go in and compete for a spot. Uh, so whose spot is he competing for? I'm not really sure. Is this Vernon Hargrave's time up? Is this his last year kind of in Tampa to figure out if he's a, you know, a foundation player on that defense? I'm not really sure. Yeah. Somebody's job is kind of in jeopardy. I'm not sure who it is. They Carl- can't all play. All Carlton time, Davis yeah. was a second-round pick last year, just like Sean Bunting yep. was this year. That's a huge investment into those players' future. There's only so many spots to go around, though. Uh, let's get to Atlanta and a team. You know, we always talk about best player available, best player available, best player available. There are a few teams out there that don't go with best player available, and I think there's an argument to be made to you know to to go that route um, over not. Atlanta is one of those teams, you know, whether they and they are not afraid to move up for a guy that they feel like they have a big need for. You look back to, to Julio Jones; they're not afraid to you know take a guy that maybe wasn't foreseen to be this kind of player. And that's kind of Chris Lynch, that where they're at with Chris Lindstrom. You know, they take him at 14th overall, one of the big shocks in the first half of the first round. You could even put the 31st pick in, the Caleb McGarry, yeah. and trading back in, and someone that a lot of scouts viewed also as a reach, in that they saw as more of a day two player. Those tackles really started to go in the late round. So if you wanted one, those are the type of moves you had to go up and go get a Caleb McGarry. Uh, but it speaks to, you know, we talked about this last week. You know, you look at what they did in free agency. They went out and they got a bunch of offensive linemen in free agency. That was a, a big point of emphasis for them coming into this offseason. We want to revamp our offensive line, get bigger, get more physical, be able to wear people out. You know, you get a, an offensive lineman from, from Boston College, and then all they want to do is run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, and you get Caleb McGarry from Washington, and he's a big mauler. I mean, you know, those guys, that, that fits the identity. So while on the outside we're looking at it like, oh, what, what are they thinking taking Chris Lindstrom 14? For what they wanted, for what they needed, 
that's what they, they valued him that way, and that's why he was the pick. Hey, they left day one of the draft saying, we got two starters on our offensive yeah, line. We exactly. got a right guard, we right. got a right tackle, and it's going to be feast or famine, and it's their jobs to lose. So anytime you can walk away from round one and saying, we got two starters, you feel pretty good about it. Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's, that fits with the offseason identity, what they were looking for. You can for. obviously argue the pick and the value and whether they're overdrafted or that whatnot. That you could talk through, But yes. you, you walked out of round one saying, we got two starters on our offensive line, we're happy. All right, let's go to uh, Carolina, another team that I feel like isn't afraid to go uh, with need as opposed to best player available, and they go into this draft um, with needs on both trenches. You know, and they and they addressed it with both two of their first two picks: Brian Burns in the first round, Greg Little in the second round. I found it interesting that they did select, and there was a lot of buzz about this going in the last last couple of weeks. Uh, Will Greer being connected to the Panthers, and obviously that that came to fruition. You know, not just some issues in the trenches, but on the perimeters of the trenches. So that's edge rushers, that's tackles, which mm. have been kind of a revolving door the last two, three years. Cam Newton hasn't been healthy. You just haven't had those kind of edge rushing, quarterback hunting presence that you've needed since. Julius Peppers first left. I know they brought him back last year, yep. and they're trying to figure out who is going to be their dominant edge rushers. And, you know, you went and signed Bruce Irvin in free agency. You get Brian Burns with the 16th pick. Clearly an emphasis that we need some quarterback hunters and some speed off the edge. Uh, also, Christian Miller from Alabama as a late-round pick is another interesting player to add into that hopper of pass rushers. Apparently, they want to be more multiple on defense. They want to kind of go between 4-3-3-4 this year. Uh, Ron Rivera had said that right after the season ended. They changed things up uh, defensively from a coaching standpoint. So Brian Burns, a guy that has that positional versatility, and Christian Miller, for sure, coming from Alabama, has that same kind of multiplicity. Yeah, exactly. And once they grabbed uh, Matt Paradis in free agency, I know there was that kind of... Uh, opening at center with Ryan Khalil uh, retiring. Once they brought in Paradis, it said, okay, I think we're good on the interior. What are we doing at the tackle position? So they go and get Greg Little in there. You go and get Dennis Daly, who is a, uh, a JUCO transfer that yep. put up some nice play down in the SEC last year that I think are really going to compete uh, with Taylor Moten and some of those guys uh, at tackle. Uh, another team, this is just how it goes in the NFC South, that I feel like every year – Potentially they draft for, for need as opposed to best player available. Uh, New Orleans didn't have a first-round pick because they traded up for Marcus Davenport last year. They felt that they needed a pass rusher. They gave up that extra one to make sure they got him. So now this year they go in, don't have a one. Second round, one of the best centers in the draft falls into their lap after their starting center retired very late in the free agency process. They luck into Eric McCoy, and it was an outstanding value pick for them. Yeah, kind of the opposite of Carolina, who addressed that opening at center in free agency and yep. said, you know what, we won't need to address that in the draft. New Orleans didn't. They obviously had that glaring need at center. Eric McCoy was sitting there. He was a great player at Texas A&M. He's played a lot of great football in the SEC. And then just adding some more talent to the defensive back room, getting yep. Chauncey Gardner-Johnson in the fourth round, who some people saw as a potential first round, potential back end around one, yep. definitely a day two player that slid into the third round, or excuse me, the fourth round. And even a Saquon Hampton, who really turned some eyes with his testing and his measurables, was almost, I always called a late round Deontay Thompson. Mm. Suddenly, Deontay Thompson is a late round Deontay right. Thompson. Uh, so he's a very interesting player from Rutgers who, you know, struggled with that program over the last three and four years. I think has some of his best football ahead of him. You look at that secondary room. Just like Tampa with all those different shapes and sizes. I mean, you got Eli Apple and Ken Crowley and P.J. Williams, Patrick Robinson. You add Chauncey Gardner. Then you bring in Marcus Sherrills in free agency and mm. Saquon Hampton in the draft. You have Von Bell and Marcus Williams. It's like 10, 11, 12 quality defensive backs yep. out there. They're not all going to make the team. But this is just what you want to do. You want to add to competition on day three picks and just see who, uh, who's going to feast or famine in the summer. Can I say a guy that just makes sense schematically is Alizé Mack, the tight end for Notre Dame, a guy that, uh, to me, like if he puts it all together, he's a day two, maybe even day one talent. But if you just couldn't put it all together, especially late in his career uh, with Notre Dame. So you go to a team and Sean Payton, then uh, number one, Sean Payton knows how to leverage your strengths. He's going to put you in, not afraid to like put you in the game, figure out what you do well, and leverage that skill set. Uh, Alizé Mack is an athletic He's kid. He's had some games where people said this could be a back end around one type yes. of tight end. Yep. But obviously the issues at quarterback, his play was very inconsistent. Yep. We're trying to figure out if he Missed was really season. that kind yep. of uh, nightmare matchup piece at tight end. 
he showed us some flashes, just wasn't consistent. So his football might be the you know the best ahead of him as well. Absolutely. All right, let's go to the AFC South. Jacksonville. Uh, they had the seventh overall selection. They get Josh Allen. Come back in round two. Get a guy that some people, including myself, had pegged had them taking in round one, and that's Jawan Taylor. They get him in the second round. He falls out of round one due to the uh, the reported knee issue. Yeah, obviously Josh Allen is that kind of jack of all trades, edge rusher that you want to you know put him in different areas of the defense and really take advantage of his skill set and his ability to cover, zone drop, play the flat, make plays side on the sideline, obviously can flush out quarterbacks at speed rushes uh, and really chase plays down from the backside. Jeremy Parnell's out at right tackle. Yep. They go and get another mauler in Jawan Taylor, who a lot of people had as a first-round pick, maybe their first or second tackle on the board. Some medical red flags, as you had mentioned, slid him to day two. They were still able to go get him. Um, you know, it's just making sure they can keep Nick Foles upright and still uh, instilling that kind of run first scheme and working the play action off of it. You got to have good tackles on the perimeter. He'll battle with Will Richardson, I would think, uh, yeah. you know, this fall. Uh, I would think so. Um, can I just say their third pick, Josh Oliver? I don't know. Did you, you, I'm assuming yes, you, did, you did Oliver. I was really high on this kid and what his upside could be. Um, you pair him, number one, with Nick Foles, who likes to target tight end position, mm-hmm. right, in terms of uh, what he's done here in Philly. And then. With John Filippo as well, who knows how to scheme things up for an athletic tight end. They've got a hole there on the depth chart. He'd be a guy, like, if you're a dynasty fantasy player, like, I'd be targeting Josh Oliver at some You know, point. and reflecting uh, Filippo with the Eagles, see, I don't think Josh Oliver is the Selleck. I don't think he's the Ertz. He's going to be the Trey Burton of the group. Ooh, okay. That has that athletic upside that may not be out there every first and second down play, but on some third and sixes and eights and third and longs. He's going to be on the field, and he's going to have some plays for him. But I think he's got the body to grow into that, into a full-time player. I think he's in much more of a fit of being a true NFL tight end. Trey Burton is a little bit of a tweener positionally and size-wise. But I think in his skill set and his usage, at least as a rookie, I think he has the athletic upside that may flash on some weeks You know, to definitely intrigue some dynasty or some fantasy owners. Uh, So we go to Houston now uh, and a team where, if you look at the overall scope, you can see... Brian Gain coming from Parcells, height, weight, speed. We talked with Lance Erline a couple weeks before the draft, uh, and he said this is how they're going to target. It's going to be offensive line and corner, and it's going to be high emphasis on those guys that have traits. Maybe they're a little bit unpolished, but they've got the traits, and that, they, that comes from that Parcells school. Keep an eye on Lonnie Johnson at corner. Lance nailed it. Um, no one really thought Titus Howard in the first round, but the Eagles uh, able to tr- trade ahead of Houston. They take Andre Dillard at 22. 23 comes up, and Houston takes uh, the next best tackle on the board. Well, I think Houston needing a tackle was the least kept secret in the yes. draft. They really didn't address it in free agency. They brought Matt Khalil in, and Deshaun Watson was sacked 50, 60 times last year. It cannot happen again, and they did not address it in free agency. Right now we're sitting here with Julian Davenport at left tackle. He cannot be the left tackle in 2019. So you go and get Titus Howard, Alabama State, more of an upside player. They're hoping turns into a Teron Armstead style player. Yep. Uh, having come from Arkansas Pline Buff, he is a Alabama State player. And then go and get Matt, Sh- Matt excuse me, Max Sharping uh, in the second round from Northern Illinois. Another type of developmental project player just to add to the depth at tackle and see if you can improve the competition because that offensive line easily was the worst group in the NFL going into draft weekend. When I talked with Brian Burns at the Combine, I asked him who the toughest player that he was that he faced in 2018. He didn't say Juwan Taylor. He didn't say you know any of these other top tackles in the ACC. He said it was Max Sharping. Interesting, because he faced some pretty talented players in, did. in the ACC, whether it was you know Hyatt at Clemson yep. or Chris Lindstrom at Boston College, and he said he said Max Sharpen gave me the most problems, um, you know, and he said hey Dwan, you know Juwan Taylor's really really good, and, you know I'm not saying anything about Juwan Taylor, but Max Sharpen. Interesting. Very interesting. And obviously they swap corners pretty much with Denver sending yep. Kareem Jackson over there. They now have Bradley, Bradley Roby, Roby, so adding you know Lonnie Johnson to the back end. Even Xavier Crawford in the sixth round out of Central Michigan. Yep. Very interesting player that I think will uh, work his way as a fifth or sixth defensive back. So next year when you're doing mock drafts, with all these things, we kind of talk about what is, what is a team's philosophy, how do they, what's their thought process going in. If a guy's not a height-weight speed guy... Maybe uh, don't put him on the list there for, uh, for Houston in your mock draft. All right, uh, let's go to the Colts. Don't have a first-round pick. They trade out of round one, uh, but they have three twos, and they have two fives, and they have two sevens. So a boatload of picks here. Um, 
certain kinds of players, but what are you, what's your overall thought process looking at looking at this whole group of players from the Colts? What do you what do you think looking at it on its face? A lot of intriguing players, and obviously some height, weight, speed guy. You got Paris Campbell and his speed. You got Bobby Okereke, who looks a lot like Darius Leonard with his arm length and his ranginess. Tested a, better than people thought. Yeah, just being that high-cut linebacker that moves really well. And I think Kari Willis and Marvell Tell play a lot of good football for mm. uh, Michigan State and USC, respectively. Um, just very interesting to add some of these bodies to the defensive back room, those two safeties, and going and getting Rocky Sin uh, with their first pick in the second round at 34, who I always saw as being more of a big safety and mm. more of that kind of uh, big nickel package player than being an outside corner. I thought he really looked like a Glover Quinn style player. Interesting. Maybe an undersized safety, but somebody with cover skills. And you look at the depth chart in Indianapolis, and Rocky Sins are starting nickel right now. So I think it's that similar mindset that we don't want these small nickels in, on the inside. We want a tough kid that's rocked up, that can stick his nose in, in the run mean, game, and that? who's a tough player, yeah. no pun intended there. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a lot of interesting players here. Um, I look at it and I say, okay, Matt Eberflus, you know, coming from uh, the Rod Marinelli tree and you know, zone heavy. I actually think Rock can play on the outside in that scheme. Like I, I kind of think that he makes sense from a philosophical standpoint. You know, to be able to, if I if I was going to try and find a spot, like I wasn't going to put him, you know, in a mock draft to Tampa Bay and Todd Bowles. Like I didn't think, oh yeah, he's a great man cover corner. But if you're going to play a lot of zone. I think I think Rocky Sin can can which thrive. They, they played one of the higher percentages yeah. of zone in the NFL last I, year. I so. definitely could see that fit. Uh, Tennessee, kind of the opposite, where you know Indianapolis had a ton of picks. Tennessee didn't have a ton really at all. Uh, they had six picks total. Um, Jeffrey Simmons going to be a wash here as a yeah, rookie, yeah, as a rookie. Shirt, yep. But uh, some guys I think that can make impacts: uh, AJ Brown, Nate Davis, uh, Amani Hooker. A lot of interesting players. David Long from West Virginia, DeAndre Walker. It's a, it's a good group overall. Yeah, A.J. Brown's interesting to add in the second round. I feel like they want to have these receivers. You can move all around the formation. We don't have a true slot or a true X because when you work him in with Tywan Taylor and Corey Davis and Ty Sharp and you sign Adam Humphreys in free agency, all these guys are right around six foot, six one. All kind of in the same mold, except for Humphrey's a little bit smaller than yeah. these other guys. Uh, but a lot of interchangeable parts. I didn't know if that A.J. Brown style of player was really what they needed to that offense. Mm. I thought maybe offensive line and bolstering the trenches on the offensive side of the ball would have helped them a little bit more. But obviously A.J. Brown's a playmaker, and to pair him with a Corey Davis and uh, Deion Lewis back there or Derrick Henry and... Marcus Mariota is a lot of playmakers if that offensive line can hold up. Amani Hooker, watching him at Iowa, I said, okay, this guy to me is a Bill Belichick-style safety. So I was thinking, you know, okay, uh, obviously New England, Miami, Detroit, is he going to end up one of those places? No, he ends up with Vrabel in Tennessee. Well, obviously he has a lot of those principles as well. He works there. um, I thought Hooker would be a great fit for Indianapolis. I, I thought he was one of the sure. better zone corners in the yep. draft. I thought he had a great FBI. And there are so many zone schemes out there in the NFL for that style of player to go into. He ends up going to the division rival in Tennessee Titans. I think instantly improves their safety room. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. Well, again, you're getting a sense for how these teams think. What gave them the motivation to, uh, to select these players? And Ben, appreciate the time here. We'll catch up with you next week to take a look at the AFC and NFC West. Hard to believe we're already halfway done. Our, our divisional recaps here for the 2019 NFL Draft. Again, our final look back to 2019. Really appreciate Ben and Dan Hatman both joining us here on the Journey to the Draft podcast this week. Next week, we will be back. Again, we'll be talking with another evaluator about his or her process when evaluating college players and projecting them to the NFL. And Ben will be back to talk about the NFC and AFC West. That'll be next week here on the Journey to the Draft podcast.